Welcome to the Array of Faith podcast, where we shed light on the beauty of our spiritual and religious differences. I'm your host, J. Dana Trent, professor of world religions and critical thinking at Wake Tech Community College in Raleigh, North Carolina. The Array of Faith podcast began as a way of connecting with Wake Tech students and beyond during this difficult time of pandemic. As a teacher of almost 10 years, I enjoy bringing guest practitioners into my classroom to help shed light on textbook academic theory and give students an opportunity to connect with real life practitioners. Due to the pandemic, we've been unable to invite guest practitioners into the classroom. So we began Array of Faith as a way of connecting with their stories, experiences, and hopefully enriching students' lives in the process. Our guest today is Gauravani Das, Hindu practitioner of more than 20 years. Gauravani is a graduate of UNC Greensboro, where he earned a BS in information systems. He also is a graduate of NC State University, where he holds a master's degree in liberal studies with a concentration on Gandhian social ethics and philosophy. Gauravani Das is assistant director of IT for NC State's Division of Academic and Student Affairs. Most importantly and interestingly, Gauravani Das served as a monk for five years in Western North Carolina and Northern California. He is here to talk to us about this experience, and we'll be talking about the ultimate reality, way of life, and ultimate purpose. Our students at Wake Tech use the Oxford University Press Invitation to World Religions textbook. We welcome you, Gauravani, to the Array of Faith podcast. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Professor Trent. Thank you. Gauravani, you are our very first guest on the Array of Faith podcast. We're so excited to bring this new medium to our students. And so in normal times, you would come to our classroom and you would tell us about your your spiritual background. Would you be willing to share a little bit about your journey to Hinduism with us? Sure. Um, so I uh, grew up in a nominally Christian family in, uh, in North Carolina. Um, when I was in college, uh, I began to read on my own some of the works of the American trans- Transcendentalists, so like Emerson and Thoreau. And it was there, actually, that I discovered a lot of ideas from the East. Um, the American trans- Transcendentalists were interestingly influenced by those ideas. Um, so from there, I kind of picked up and began to study Buddhism and Hinduism uh, on my own. And as graduation approached, um, I happened to discover that there were uh, monks in the area. Um, and so I uh, met with them and discussed philosophy and, and got a copy of the Bhagavad Gita. Um, and it was uh, after reading the Bhagavad Gita where so many questions that I'd had about life in general were, were answered. And so at that time, I decided I really want to try to, uh, to practice this. Um, it's just a very inspiring text. So for the next five years, that's, that's what I did. Um, at one point, I moved to a remote uh, monastery in Northern California 
where my guru and his students were living. And uh, it was a small, semi-self-sufficient monastery where I learned to milk cows and garden. And um, I was also uh, initiated um, or ordained would be another word for it. And I learned how to perform uh, ritualistic deity worship uh, or puja and adati. Um, and after a few years of living there, I decided that um, being a monk was not something that I could do for the rest of my life. I, I went into it um, with, with that hope, um, but very few people are, are cut out to be a monk their entire life. So uh, at that point, I decided to leave the monastery. I came back to North Carolina, and um, not too long after that, I um, got a job at NC State, and, I, and I've been there since for almost 13 years now. Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. You certainly have an unusual story growing up in rural North Carolina and then becoming a monastic at such a young age. Um, I imagine that most of our students have not have never met a monk. And so based on the three questions that we use in our textbook, ultimate reality, way of life, and ultimate purpose, we ask students to think about other religious and spiritual perspectives from these three questions. And ultimate reality means where do we come from? Where do we come from? So I'd like to connect this back to your original story. When you were growing up, what would be, what was your answer to the ultimate reality question? And how did that answer shift as you entered into Hindu studies and becoming a full-time monk? Um, that's an interesting question. So I think when I was young, I would say that I came from my parents, right? I was um, born from them. Um, and so, you know, my origin, so to speak, began when I was born. And my identity or sense of self was tied to my, you know, physical and, and mental um, state. So, um, So with that kind of conception of self and mind, that would be you know, kind of how one would describe their their origin or, or where they come from. Um, but that that conception of self and how I might describe my origin story, so to speak, um, would be uh, was reframed, um, especially when I when I read the Gita. And so one of the things that the Gita says is that um, basically um, that you are more than just a body and a mind. And when I read that in the Gita, I actually felt um, a huge sense of relief that, um, you know, there was more to life than just a body and a mind, which often can be very troublesome. Um, I mean, for, for me, you know, I kind of had a dysfunctional family. So, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, my, my body and mind weren't the most comfortable place to be all the time. So, um, and I'm sure many people can can relate to that to one degree or another. So I experienced a great deal of relief by reading that, and so the the um, the philosophy and the theology of of Hinduism and in in particular the tradition that I'm a part of, um, the self is um, this the origin of the self is actually from God, um, and in Hinduism, God's name is Vishnu. Vishnu means all-pervading. It's just a, a way to describe God as being everywhere all the time. So, so that's our origin. And, and the, the, the theology is that God has no beginning, right? He's 
he or she is eternal. Um, so also everything related to him also has no beginning or end. So this, this is a different sense of self being um, from God. In other words, you are also, the idea is that you are also eternal. Um, and there's, there's a word for this in, in Hinduism. It's called Atma or Atman. Um, and it basically means like a unit of consciousness. So the idea is that God is conscious. He's conscious of everything all the time. And an individual as, a, as an aspect of God, as a part of God, is also consciousness, but in a limited sense. So one would only be conscious of their body and mind. But the idea in Hinduism is that the self is that tiny particle of consciousness that not only is it tiny, but it also exists forever. So this is a very different sense of self because the body and the mind are temporary. You know, you, your, your body will, as you grow old, you realize your body's not going to say it stay as strong as it used to be. And it's going to be harder for you to do things and eventually it's going to wither away. Uh, and sometimes you see your loved ones, this happened to your loved ones. And we all know that our state of mind also fluctuates constantly. One day we're happy, one day we're sad. Sometimes the same things will make us happy one day and sad the next day. Um, so um, reframing the sense of self such that one does not identify with the mind and body, which are temporary, gives a lot of relief um, because it gives you the sense that there's more to life than just chasing things that don't endure because the mind and the body don't don't endure um so so i guess uh, in according to hinduism everyone is their origin story is basically that they're part of god they're from god they're from vishnu god vishnu desired to he was he was one and he desired to become many that's um I can't recall the Sanskrit, but but that's straight from the the Hindu scripture. So out of joy, he desired to manifest um, units and particles of consciousness, and that and that's what we are. That's what Hinduism um, uh, argues for. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you so much for describing that for us. And you mentioned Vishnu and the ultimate reality. And so I want to share with our students that this will sound familiar to them. And this is part of what we call dualism in Hinduism. And monism is a different branch of Hinduism. And I know that you know a bit about monism too. And so feel free to, to say more about each of the branches as we head into our next question, which is this. You talked about, you described our origin story, that we are, we come from God, we are part of God, we are a particle of God. And so in light of that, in light of coming from, in your tradition, Vishnu, our second question is, how do we live? How should we live given the ultimate reality, given where we come from? Another really good question. So, um, so yeah, perhaps I'll start by describing some of the branches of Hinduism and then land on the particular tradition that I'm a part of, and then we can talk about um, way of life from, from that perspective. So there are many branches of Hinduism, and I'm not going to claim to represent all of them um, accurately, um, but to summarize them 
briefly, um, I guess one framework you could use is the monism and, and dualism. So monism is the idea that there's only one, um, one substance, one entity, so to speak, and that's God. Um, and that would be the Advaitin school of uh, Hinduism, Advaita Vedanta, founded by Sri Shankaracharya. Um, and I'm not going to be able to remember the dates, but, but that is uh, one school of Hinduism. In, in that conception, um, God is called Brahma. Um, and so God is formless, which means God does not have a personality, does not have a form. Um, it, it, God is just the undescribable or the ineffable. Um, kind of like, um, almost like just pure light would be another way of talking about it. So there are particular practices that go along with that path. Um, it's primarily uh, studying the scripture and um, meditation. And the goal there is just to, to identify with, with God in that way um, as just a pure peace and pure being. That's the idea there. And I think uh, even outside of Hinduism, many many people can identify with with that idea. Everybody's interested in peace um, and in being peaceful. Um, the other traditions of Hinduism um, uh, have a what may be called a dualistic perspective. So in that perspective, there is a distinction made between and there's um, there's a distinction made between three things: God, the world, and the individual. And so, um, so, of course, God is eternal. And as we mentioned before, an individual person, so to speak, is eternal. And the world is eternal, but it also is temporary. <laughs> so just like we talked about the body and the mind are always fluctuating um, in that sense that they're temporary. So, um, so these dualistic traditions of Hinduism make this distinction and they acknowledge that what we experience on a day-to-day -day basis is um, to put it briefly and perhaps crudely is we're always pursuing things that do not endure we're pursuing temporary things even though what we are is permanent we're also eternal like god not as big as god you know a, a small particle of god so um, we become uh, unsatisfied in that pursuit because we intrinsically want things that last forever, right? When, when, we, when we go see a movie, um, we do it with the hope that it's going to make us happy or change our mood. And, of course, we hope that's going to last for some time, hopefully forever, but, of course, it doesn't, right? When we eat a meal, when we eat a tasty meal, you know, our intention there is that it's going to, you know, satisfy us for a long period of time. But what do you have to do the next day or maybe the next few hours you have to eat again? <laughs> so we're in, on this continuous pursuit to try and satisfy things that cannot be satisfied. And often as a result, we end up harming ourselves. So, for example, we might eat food that's not good for us and then we might get sick but then we'll be hungry again, right? So it's this, <laughs> and I'm giving like very simple crude examples, but I, I think I think you can get the idea that if we look at our life and 
are reflective and introspective, we can see we're kind of on this treadmill of and what the Gita describes as happies and sads, goods and bads, you know, uh, we're just kind of on this treadmill that's really going nowhere, because in the end, you die. Um, so that that is not a nihilistic perspective. Um, Hinduism has, has a response to that. Um, and that is to pursue, um, pursue things that are eternal, or pursue God or a relationship with God. Um, and so specifically in your life, that's a great answer. What does it look like on a daily basis? You gave a wonderful um, theological answer about the way in which Hindus should live given the temporary material world, if you will. So what are some very practical things that you do in your everyday life for how you move about the world and how you live in the world? Yeah, uh, um, I think it's important to point out that, you know, there are other traditions aside from uh, Hinduism that have a dualistic perspective. And and the teaching is never to like just abandon the world because it's temporary. Um, For most folks, that would be counterproductive um, because we um, the idea is that you haven't really had enough realization or advancement to truly, you know, abandon the world, so to speak. And that's not really the goal to begin with anyway. So what a practitioner does is try to take their everyday activities and somehow offer them or dedicate them to God. And so how that would play out very practically, for example, at the monastery, um, I'll just describe the life there because I think it's a good example of how, how, at least in Hinduism, you center your life on God. So we would wake up at 4 a.m. Um, often we do a little bit of meditation, which mostly consists of uh, medita- meditation on the names of God in, in Hinduism. And then we would do um, a morning worship, which is basically offering um, elements to God. So for example, we would offer a flame, we would offer incense, we would offer water. So these are all elements of the world, elements of our body even. So it's a symbolic ritual um, which basically says, I offer myself to you. It's a nice thing to do first thing in the morning. Sets the tone for the day. So we um, perform these rituals. We sing songs along the same lines, um, offering ourselves to God, glorifying God. Um, and then we do some meditation. I would often milk the cows. And so, of course, later we would take that milk and we would turn it into paneer or sweets. Um, and we would offer all of our meals to God. So it's a particular ritual um, that you do where you offer all your food to God and, and, and you don't eat until it's been offered is the idea. And then throughout the day, we would either take care of the cows, take care of the garden, maintain the facility, um, etc. So in this way, um, you know, one's whole life is centered around serving God. You only eat after you've, um, after the food has been offered. You maintain the temple um, and, and on and on from there. Um, so that's, you know, that's kind of an, an extreme example, so to speak, um, that people may look at that example and think, sheesh, why would you want to do that <laughs> with your life? Um, but it is very fulfilling um, y- y- because you're pursuing something that's not 
um, temporary. You're pursuing something that's eternal. And it, it um, it's, it's interesting because, and this is hard to do, um, but you're really like giving of yourself uh, completely. I think oftentimes we may find ourselves in relationships where we try to give of ourselves completely and we end up being dissatisfied because the person cannot accept our love or a person cannot accept us for who we are. Um, and that makes relationships difficult. But in a relationship with God, you can get you can give everything. He or she can take it all and and um, find all the good in it and 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 help you along with the best intention. So it is a very fulfilling, um, but also very intense lifestyle to have to have kind of everything focused on God. So what I do now that I've been out of the monastery for so many years is um, it's pretty basic. I just try to remember. God throughout the day. Remember the names of God throughout the day. Uh, I'm not very, I don't have a lot of structure to my spiritual life right now. It's something that I'm working on, um, but I do regularly um, uh, read the scripture and try to focus on, um, meditate on the name of God throughout the day. I also have some service that I do um, for my gurus related to maintaining websites and whatnot. So that's also uh, an aspect of, of my spiritual practice. Mm. Thank you. Thank you so much. I want to go forward to the ultimate purpose, but you said something that I thought was really interesting. You said, I don't have a lot of structure to the way of life right now. And so a little bit later in the podcast, we're going to talk about the effects of the pandemic on spirituality and religion and practice. And so I want to sort of drop a pin on that and we're going to circle back to it. But I loved what you said about how you can find meaning and depth through serving God and making God the center of your day, which is actually quite fulfilling in Hinduism because that is the way the scripture describes as being... um, a way of connecting with that eternal part of ourselves and of course the eternality of God. So that stretches us right to our third question framework in world religions, which is ultimate purpose. And the ultimate purpose is about where are we going? So everything builds, right? Where have, where do we come from? What do we do and where are we going? So what is the ultimate goal in your branch of Hinduism? Yeah. So, um, in my particular branch of his Hinduism. It's, um, it's a bhakti yoga, um, path. Um, so there are three different kinds of yoga. There's gyan yoga, um, bhakti yoga and karma yoga. And so gyan yoga is, you know, what you would practice if you wanted to realize or attain Brahman, um, which is again, the indescribable aspect of God. Um, and so, bhak- monism, right? Yeah, monism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so in my tradition, um, bhakti yoga, God uh, has a form, has a personality, and these things are not limiting God. They're not human impositions on God, um, which is often thought of anthro anthropomorphizing anthropomorphic yeah <laughs> never pronounce that um so uh so you know one way to think about it is you know our the human the forms that we see in this world the human forms that we see in this world are a reflection of god not that god who has a form is an imposition of humanity upon god that would be that would be 
a little bit of the theology behind that in, in Hinduism. Um, so, so the idea is that God has a form, God has a personality, and God does things. He or she has a life. Um, he or she has a social life. Um, and it's quite exciting based on what the Hindu scriptures uh, talk about. So the idea, at least in my tradition, is to develop a relationship with God, a devotional relationship. And so there's many different flavors of relationships. So just like in our human lives, um, we may have uh, we ha- we have a mother and a father, or someone who who um, who serves as our uh, mother and father. Um, we have brothers and sisters, perhaps. Um, uh, we have teachers. Um, we and we have wives or girlfriends, right? Or boyfriends or husbands or spouses, partners, etc. So we have romantic relationships, fraternal or friendly relationships. We have paternal relationships, um, and we have relationships where we're serving someone else or learning from someone else. So all the idea in in my particular form of Hinduism is that um, you have opportunities to have those kinds of relationships with God forever. So, you know, we have relationships with our parents, but they're not going to be there forever. You know, my, my father's already passed, um, and that's a, that's a difficult thing to go through. But, you know, I'm only a son in as far as I have a father, right? It's a temporary identity. Um, whereas with God, we develop a spiritual identity in relationship with God that lasts forever. And it's not boring. <laughs> uh, based on the descriptions in the scripture, it's, it's fun. The idea in my tradition is that God plays. He has nothing that he has to do. He or she has nothing that they have to do. And so they just play. And you can be part of that. You could have a paternal relationship with God. And um, just to go in a little bit of detail about that, if God, if God is your son or daughter, they're kind of mischievous, right? That's, <laughs> I'm, I'm not a parent, but I understand there's kind of like a mix of emotions of having kids. You love them to death, but boy, they drive you crazy sometimes. Well, God's the same way. <laughs> um, and and uh, he acts up just to increase the affection um, of his parents. Um, one can have a fraternal relationship with God where you're just buddy-buddy um, and he m- might ride on your shoulders um, as you play fight with all your friends. Uh, and, and I'm not making this stuff up. This is this is described in the Hindu scripture. So, And the other, and finally, um, one can have a romantic relationship of God with God. Um, and that's not unique to Hinduism. Uh, I think you'll find some strains of Christianity, uh, this idea of being the bride of Christ. Um, so yeah, one can have a romantic relationship with God where you're secretly in love with him and um, your parents aren't supposed to find out. Nobody's parents is supposed to find out, but you know, you wink at each other from across the room and make eyes. At, and that's exciting also. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um so yeah, so that is the ultimate purpose, is that um, you know you acknowledge that this human mind and body that that you have that in many ways you're trapped in, um, but that's going to end. Um, you know that is only worth using in pursuit 
of developing a spiritual identity or a spiritual sense of self where one is in relationship with God. And, you know, God becomes the center. You know, we often think we're the center of the universe and that God's supposed to do this and that for us. We get a long list. Um, But, um, you know, the idea in Hinduism, it kind of flips it on its head. What can you do for God? And it's an interesting theological question. Um, You know, what can you do for someone who appears to have everything, right? And and I'll end with this point. in in my particular tradition of Hinduism, he is never without she, right? So the, the masculine, so to speak, form of God is is never without she. And by the way, in, in Hinduism, God's complexion is blackish, and he has long black hair, and he wears earrings, and um, he, he uh, takes um, soil from the forest and decorates his face with it. Um, so, uh, very beautiful descriptions of God um, in, in his masculine form. So, he is never without she, the feminine aspect of God. And um, he is actually controlled by her. This is like the secret um, that I'm sharing with you from my tradition that um, God is in love with his feminine counter whole. And so when people ask the question, what can you possibly give God? Well, God has given himself to her, right? He has given his heart to her. And so now you have to give your heart to him. Mm. Wow, that's incredible. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. Wow. So it it sounds like and and you've done such a beautiful job applying these these words that we read in the textbook and making them come to life for us and what it actually looks like in someone's everyday life but also what they're striving for in terms of the ultimate purpose of once there is a release from samsara and the atma does achieve moksha or liberation the idea is that we go to be with god in god's story Mm -hmm. in whatever relationship that is whether it's paternal fraternal romantic um parent child whatever it is but that we we give god our our affection in that particular realm as the ultimate purpose and that's beautiful it's beautiful to think about and to imagine and it's well, um, as you said, well documented in Vedic scriptures. Mm-hmm. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Our wrap up question is given all of this beautiful theology that you've shared through the ultimate reality, way of life, and ultimate purpose, the description of Vishnu that you've talked about, of Krishna, how has the pandemic affected? you personally and your religion and spirituality and your community yeah good question so it's it's been tough um you know a lot of hindus like to gather together in homes and sing and dance uh in temples as well and of course we we can't do that right now um so um now is a time uh in one's life our our teachers have have taught us that um one should spend more time going inward um, you know, oftentimes we're oriented outward, but now is the time to really examine our motivations. Um, you know, I think the pandemic lends itself to that. Um, 
because you, you just basically have to spend more time at home. I mean, to to the degree to the degree that you can, and I mean, some folks still have to, don't have an opportunity to stay home and continue working. They um, they have to go out and work. Um, so it's a time to as much as you can go inward and meditate and really try to get down to what's motivating oneself and is there room for improvement there is there a way that one can orient their life uh, more towards god especially in this time and maybe if the pandemic ever ends uh, even after the pandemic Um, but i also think that um, it's also an opportunity not just to go inward that that is uh, definitely important but we see um, the pandemic really reveals how weak our social structures are, um, especially around justice. So I alluded to the fact that some folks have to continue working to live, uh, I mean, going out um, and putting themselves in harm's way to, to continue living. So, um, you know, we've talked a bit about being selfless towards God, but there's other ways to be selfless that are important that Hinduism encourages, that someone like Gandhi encourages, and that is being selfless towards others. And so I think when we're introspective, when we're thinking about how our life is oriented, we should include in that, how can I conduct myself in a way that makes the world more just, that causes less harm to people, either directly or indirectly, um, and to act on that. And that's hard, especially in the society that we live in. Um, it's it's just structured in such a way that you know harm is caused on so many levels just living out your daily life and so I think we have opportunities to think about that deeply I, I wish we had um, social structures or community structures that allowed us to do that more um, maybe some folks do and that's great um, but I hope that um, going forward that people are able to really think about justice and how they can be a part of moving towards a more just society. Mm, Thank you. Thank you. And before we wrap up, we always ask in in the classroom, we ask our guest practitioners to offer our students one piece of advice or words of wisdom before we depart. But before we do that, I want to ask you a really special question about, I've heard something about your, your roommate you have a very unique roommate, um, a, I guess a roommate that you've been living with for about 10 years. Is there something special you want to tell us about your roommate? Yes. So if you can't tell, Professor Trent and I are in the same room right now. Uh, that's because we're married <laughs> and we're not afraid to hang out in the same room as we have been. We're quarantined together. Yeah. Yes. And and students, this will be a question on your midterm, so hopefully you have kept listening to this point. All right, as we wrap up, Gauravani Das, thank you so much for your time. And what words of wisdom, what parting wisdom do you have for our students at Wake Tech as they navigate their own faith, spirituality, thoughts, emotions in this pandemic? Um, I think the most important thing that one can do to have a fulfilling life is to find ways to act selflessly. Um, and so you could you could do that on your own, look for opportunities to volunteer, to try and somehow put others before yourself. Um, 
a way to do that more powerful, powerfully is to um, find someone who's already doing that, someone who inspires you, and act selflessly towards them. Help that person. And that's a very, very powerful practice. So that's what I would encourage students to do. Find ways to be selfless. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much for those words of wisdom. All right, friends, this has been our very first episode of Array of Faith. This is the Array of Faith podcast, shedding light on the beauty in our faith, spiritual, and religious differences. I've been your host, J. Dana Trent, Professor of World Religions at Wake Tech Community College in Raleigh, North Carolina. Thank you for joining us.